grieved his heart to hear that the people and the city were in ruins. And that morning, that grief um, lasted for quite a period of time until God, as he poured himself out in prayers, we find again and again in Nehemiah, that in the context of the world, in the context of the fullness of the place, that he fell before his God and cried out to God. And as he cried out to God, he didn't just stay there. He then went on to say, God, what are you calling me to do? How do I put a plan into action to see the change and the transformation that I long to see for the city and his people? And so Nehemiah is a man who then got busy to make the thing happen, to start to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city. We saw last week in uh, Nehemiah 4 that actually faced quite a lot of opposition that came against him. A lot of that opposition came from outside of people who didn't want to see that project go well, didn't want to see it succeed. And we find ourselves here in Nehemiah 5 as momentum has has carried on, as things have kept going and uh, ready to carry on to see the project continue. Things may have looked good now. They got through a whole load of challenges and you can just feel it where there's a sigh of relief when you get through a set of challenges. And you think, yeah, it's great. We've overcome that hurdle. We've got beyond that difficulty. But then problems start to brew for Nehemiah that with problems that were beneath the surface in his, inside his own community. And most of us recognize that. We all come from different families. We come from different experiences of families, whether they're families we grew up with, whether it's church families. And all of us have different ways of dealing with living with each other, of ministering together as a church. We all have different experiences of what those families were like, how we deal with the fact that we're different to other people, how we feel the fact that we have different hopes and dreams, how we deal with the fact that actually we need to deal not only with our own fallenness and our own sin, but also the fallenness sin of those that we live with. To live with our expectations and our dreams, not just for ourselves, but with others, and also God's dreams for us. We've got to find a way and learn a way and live a way that deals with the reality of the world. But I wonder what kind of family you've grown up in. For example, when things have gone wrong in your family, and things will have gone wrong at some point, unless... If you want to put your hand up, put a response. If you grew up in a perfect family and were the perfect person, then you know, you're not included in this particular... Alistair, you're making a bid for the perfect person, the perfect family. I'm not with you this morning, I'm afraid, but you can do chat off the end. But when things go wrong, what do you do? Are you a brusher under the carpet and hope it'll go away? Was that the way you dealt with conflict and disagreement and when things went wrong in your family? Or are you a confront it, confront it with a a ferocious honesty that leads to chaos? Is that your experience of dealing with it in your family? Or have you found a way uh, in your family, or what did you grow up with, where you deal with it, but actually you face it honestly, but it leads to peace? It leads to peace. It leads to reconciliation. It leads to a greater sense of wholeness rather than leaving chaos behind us. One of the classic examples of that is for those of you who have been parents, anybody who has been a parent will know the challenge of how you discipline, how you bring up children, 
At what point do you say, you know, am I going to discipline the child? Am I going to discipline my child? And what kind of discipline is it? Or do I risk not being honest with them? Am I fearful that I might somehow lose my child if I don't talk honestly and openly with them? That actually somehow, actually I might lose them, therefore we just pretend that things are all okay. It's quite challenging. When things go wrong, when things simmer under the surface, when things are undealt with, the poison can spread throughout a community. And unless it's properly dealt with, what we find is there's like a pseudo-peace in a community. On the surface, it looks fine, but beneath the surface, it's chaos, it's acrimony, and it's difficult. What we end up doing is we tolerate each other rather than pressing into what God wants for us, which is a true community of his church. Most of us, I don't know about you, different people would maybe slightly different, but most of us don't enjoy confrontation. Maybe we've had experiences where we've tried it and things have gone spectacularly wrong. But from those places of things going wrong, we need to learn how to do it well, and that leads to a place of peace with us. So we rejoin Nehemiah here in chapter 5, and we're going to go through it pretty quickly uh, this morning. So what's happened here, you find in verse 1, that there's an outcry in the community, in Nehemiah's community. Why? Well, we see in verses 2 to 4 what's going on. Some of the Jews in Jerusalem were very rich. Some of the Jews in Jerusalem were very poor. A famine had produced a crisis where the wealthy Jews in the city were buying up large proportions and portions of the little food that was available and storing it up. And they were lending to the poor members of the, of the community at very high interest rates. As the poor became poorer, they still had to pay their taxes and they still had to survive and so they couldn't pay the money back. So the wealthy Jews took their land their homes, their vineyards, and even their family, their neighbours, their children, are sold into slavery. It's an incredibly dark, really dark situation that a community has come to this. In many ways, depending whether how exposed you are to some of the things that go on around the world in different communities, it's almost unthinkable that it reached that point where you'd sell someone into slavery to be able to pay things back. So rather than use the money and the wealth that these uh, Jews had got to bless others and to help us, the wealthy Jews were using it to oppress the poor. And everybody knew it was happening. It wasn't kind of a secret. It was happening out in the open. And the community started to speak about it and to rail against it. And when things are happening like this, when those things are going on, we all recognize that actually we need to name it. It needs recognizing that things are broken, that things are not right. Someone has to acknowledge it. There's no point living in a fantasy world where we think things are fine and actually they're not. The elephant in the room, so to speak, is named here by the people. Otherwise, it's not possible to get the right help wonder whether you recognize this in your families or the things you've come across in your own community. For example, dad drinks too much. 
Sarah's not reaching her potential at school. David has a problem with gossiping and is causing division in the family and in the community. Beth and Andy are facing challenges in their marriage and they need help. Granny is depressed. Jeff is cutting corners in his work and he's fiddling his expenses. I wonder whether you recognize any of that. Remember, Nehemiah's task was building the wall. The mission he was called to by God was on the line. And the tensions that were existing within his community were literally threatening the project coming to a halt. So he couldn't and chose not to look away. Nehemiah chose to confront those. We see in verse 6 that he was incredibly angry at the abuse that was going on in the community. The people in the community knew there was a problem, but it was Nehemiah who took the action in confronting the issue in front of them. You see it in verse 7, 8, and 9. That's what that's all about. Nehemiah, Nehemiah risked the relationship with people he presumably loved and worked with and served with to reach a place where there was a true community, where you could speak the truth and honestly. What's it, what use is it to build a beautiful uh, city of Jerusalem with beautiful walls around it in which to keep us away from all the, pe- the forces that come against it, but actually to be tearing ourselves apart within. What use is Nehemiah's project actually if the work is being torn apart within? If they're enslaving each other to bondage, it's almost unbelievable. They're literally shooting themselves in the foot. What use, for example, is it for us to have a fabulous church here, a church building here, if we're not leading a community who lead each other into life? We're living as the people of God in this place, at this time, in this city, in this parish of Bath. It's not just speaking the truth, it's actually having our tongues full of grace and truth together at the same time. That's what love for one another demands, grace and truth together. That's what Jesus brought, grace and truth. Jesus full of truth and grace. Truth does bring freedom, but it's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Not part truths, not bit truths, not half truths, the whole truth. And that's the place where we'll find healing and wholeness and peace restored. That's a place where we get free as we bring all that before God and before each other. Nehemiah had, as we've seen in his prayers and some of the other bits, a, a gentle side as a leader. And actually, but he was also very passionate and strong and clear and driven in making sure that he achieved what God had set him to. He came in the authority and the power and the name of the Lord for what God had called him to. And he confronted the challenge ahead of him head on. Too much is at stake to ignore it. I've grown up, particularly in the last five or ten years, in a Christian a tradition that talks a lot about servant leadership, about being humble, about being meek, and that is all good. That's what the life of Jesus. 
But an even look at Scripture also shows a, um, a vision of leadership who have intensity, who have zeal, who have passion, who have the fire to live out what God has put on their life and the call that he's called them to. We need both. It's not either or. Here we are in St. Swithin's, a good news community. Good news to those within and good news to those outside our community. There's too much at stake to let division get in the way. Critiquing others, sitting on the sidelines rather than joining in is going to make it hard for us. But God calls us to participate uniquely for what he's laid on our hearts to make our contribution to this church at this time in this city. Find our place. Find a place where you're a square peg in a square hole. may not be at the minute feel like that, but that's the vision. That's what we long to do, to find that place for us that is our place within this community, that we can grow, we can flourish, we can be all God has called us to be. Whenever I go um, to a church, and I've been to quite a lot of churches in my Christian lives, in my Christian lives, in my Christian life, um, one other thing, I often, when Joe and I may have a conversation about how it went, one of the things I've always felt, even before I became a vicar, I always used to say, is this community at ease with itself? Does this feel like a community that knows who it is, what it's about, and is, is at ease with that? rather than they're not. There's dis-ease within our community. And that's what we long to be, at peace with God and at peace with one another and bringing peace to the world. That's what we call to. And that's one of the things we're passionate about here too. So then also we then rejoin our story where we need uh, the issues confronted, the issues named, and the action must be taken to put things right. Nehemiah publicly calls on the wealthy to forgive the debts the free the slaves and return the property. We see it in verse 11. And he calls them to do it back immediately. Not next week, not next year. Actually need to do something now. And instead of a long process of denial or negotiation, actually they agree to this. They agree the wealthy parties give back what they've taken and uh, promise not to continue to abuse their poorer neighbours in verse 12. And actually to seal the deal, to seal that that's not just something they've to do, involves the priests so that they're publicly accountable for what they've agreed to. It's not just in their heads, but actually it's publicly agreed to. This is what we've committed to. This is what we said we'd do, and this is what we're going to follow through. And then Nehemiah declares the justice of God in shaking out and emptying those who don't choose a life of putting things right, of restitution. Putting things right is uh, an important step. If a child is stolen, we often teach them as parents that actually you need to give that back. If you slandered somebody, then you need to go and speak the truth to that person. If you're an employee who's cutting corners, you need to work back the time that you've taken from your employer. Restitution is part of the healing process. It's not just abstract. As a church, who has one of its previous members, as William Wilberforce, as one of its previous members, where justice in society is still a cry for in our own generation. 
where exploitation is not okay? Where do we live? What can we do? How do we join in in bringing justice in our own society in this generation? Inequalities, we live in a parish of massive difference in inequality. How can we make a real difference today? In the last uh, church I was part of, one of the things uh, I got involved in was uh, we had the prison, the local prison in our, our parish. One of the things I loved to do was to go in and to be part of the ministry in the prison I was there. And I um, used to do a range of things. And then I got involved in um, some work called the Sycamore Tree Project, which is run by Prison Fellowship International. And it's an initiative about restoring justice, of restorative justice. Justice isn't just about saying some words, but it's an attempt to bring those who perpetrate and those who are the victims of injustice together and to find a place of restitution and of healing and of seeing justice done. Here's an example, um, just an example of a man who wanted to witness seeing what restorative justice looked like. It's actually the context of the school, not a prison. And this was his account of what he went to witness a number of years ago. There were 10 of us in a large room, sitting in a ring of comfortable chairs. This was my first restorative justice council, and everybody at the table was sharing how they were affected by Sarah's choice to drink on the school trip. The head had to call Sarah's parents, and they had to drive back home um, and miss the rest of the trip. A school student, a student, affiliates facilitated the whole meeting that they sat around. And this school child shared how alcoholism had affected his own family and the pain he felt seeing Sarah drunk. Sarah's parents shared how they were scared when they got a call from their head in the middle of the night. Sarah there had her boyfriend there with her as an ally in this meeting. Her boyfriend wanted the group to know that she was a good person, that she'd been depressed lately, and that everyone makes mistakes when they're young. When it came back to Sarah, she said, I never realised how many people I affected. I just thought I was hurting myself. I didn't didn't mean to mess up the trip for everybody else. I realised I disrespected everybody here. I shouldn't have drunk. I think drinking is just like an escape for me. But now my problems are even worse, she said. Sarah was asked to further reflect on what she was thinking and feeling at the time of her decision and now that time had passed. Then everybody was asked to write down as many positive qualities that Sarah had that they could think of and share them. These would serve as a reminder to her of her importance, her strengths, her contribution to the school community, as well as to increasing three contract items Uh, for her to complete as part of the restitution process. Contracts were a way of seeing the the student repair the the damaged relationships. During the time of the conversation with these 10 people in the room, um, as we shared what we saw in her, things like creativity, leadership, her ability in maths and science, her strength, she was no longer able to hold back her tears. I just thought you were all going to yell at me, she said. 
hearing how much you'll see me, how much, hearing today how much you'll see in me, I just feel like I really have let you all down, she said softly. But now Sarah was presented with a way to repair some of the relationships she had hurt. Sarah and the rest of us brainstormed things that she could do to eliminate the root causes of her harmful choices, heal relationships with fellow students, and improve her chances of finishing school. When asked to reflect on her experience with restorative justice, she wrote to me and she said this, my experience was one of the most effective disciplinary approaches that I'd ever been confronted with. It made me understand how my actions affected people not only directly, but how my actions set off a series of events. Seeing this reality and being given a second chance made me so thankful. Ever since these events, I've excelled in school, have felt closer to my community, and brought me closer to the people I affected. To this day, when harm happens to me or my community, I try to look at all sides of the story, express my emotions, and listen to other people, and look for a positive outcome. For many people, restorative justice, and it's just one way, is messy, tough, and personal. But at the same time, it's also beautiful, rewarding, and just. As we rejoin at Nehemiah in verse 14, one of the things I remember, um, particularly when I was younger, I think at university, I used to ask, uh, we used to talk to lots of my friends about Christianity, about Jesus, and one of the greatest objections that I always used to get back is that um, people used to say to me, well, you know, you Christians, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You say one thing and you do the other thing. We're unkind. I see Christians being unkind, they would say. I see you being judgmental. I see you being dishonest. I see you being ungracious. And to them, it became like a barrier to faith. I'm not saying that's a whole story, but that's what they used to present to me. What we see here is Nehemiah lays out that he's saying that here I've practiced what I've preached in verses 14 to 19. He continues to live a life of sacrificial generosity towards his community. He doesn't hoard for himself. He doesn't abuse others. He shares what he has with the community and he even refuses the Persian allowance that includes his time as 12 years as a governor of Judah. Nehemiah is dancing to a different tune. Nehemiah's leadership means getting his hands dirty too, as we see in verse 16. And we see the first of one of the beautiful prayers that we find in Nehemiah amongst many. Remember me with favor, my God. Remember me with favor, my God. I wonder when we have a moment of honesty, um, how many times the words come out of our mouth that when we're really honest with ourselves are effectively saying, do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. I know any parent that's particularly challenging for. And what you know is, is that when you do that, it's a particularly bad way of influencing people. You tell your kids to eat healthily. I'm obviously this is a moment of confession this morning. I tell my kids to eat healthily, then I personally eat lots of chips, lots of chocolates, lots of all those things. I say, it's really healthy for your kids, eat loads of vegetables, and I do something completely different. 
I'd say to our kids, don't get dominated by electronic worlds. You know, turn off your tablet. You don't need it. And I'm constantly checking my emails, constantly on my tablet, constantly on all those things. I say one thing, the right thing, but I demonstrate a different thing. All of us can recognize that challenge in our life. Integrity, example, hypocrisy, it's a challenge. The challenge of Christian living and living for God. The majority of people we know follow our example. A look at particularly at our children shows that actually some of our bad habits just seem to go towards them. Not what we choose, but actually that's the way it is. But we all of us can recognize in that imperfect sense of not being complete. We have weaknesses, areas of sin. None of us have yet made it this side of eternity. We are in the process of constantly being changed by a God who by his spirit longs to continue to be at work, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We are a work in progress. We all have areas of development. And that's part of the deal. But for us, we also need to say at the same time that as Bill Hybels, the American pastor, famous, said, the local church is the hope of the world. Because of our fullness, we don't lower our standards of what God longs for us, what God hopes for us, what God desires for us. We long for all that he has for us. Let me just read as I come towards an end. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, many of you have heard of, um, during the 1700s, was, was part of the Great Awakening that went through uh, the States and others. When they were taking stock of what God was doing amongst them and seeing so many lives of people giving their lives to Christ, one of the things they were um, making sense of is they didn't want to be an impediment to what God was doing. They didn't want to feel that they, what they were doing, the life they were living in some way, was preventing what God wanted for them. And these are the 10 things that they as a community said they were up for. They said this, in all our conversation, concerns, and dealing with our neighbors, we will be honest, just, and upright. Secondly, if we wrong others in any way, we will not rest until we have made restitution. We promise that we will not permit ourselves to indulge in any kind of backbiting. We'll be careful not to do anything to others out of a spirit of revenge. When there's a difference of opinion concerning another's rights, we will not allow private interest to influence us. We will not tolerate the exercise of enmity or ill will or revenge in our hearts. Seventhly, if we find that we have a secret grudge within our hearts, we will not gratify it but we will root it out. We will not allow over-familiarity in our talk with others or anything that might stir up licentious behavior. It's a slightly old-fashioned phrase, isn't it? Licentious behavior. We resolve to examine ourselves on a regular basis, knowing that the heart is very deceitful. And we will run with perseverance. The race that is set before us, working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Things won't always go right. 
but we're not called to live in fear. But when they go wrong, we need to be honest about where we're up to, honest with God, honest with each other. And we need to recognize that change is part of what God longs for us, longs to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, to put things right. And I wonder this morning, and I know this is very challenging, it's a very challenging passage, I know that I'm being quite direct, and I'm, I'm including myself as much as I'm including you as part of it. I wonder what kind of example we're setting this morning. I wonder when you take a moment to think of one of the great examples in your own life, someone you really looked up to, and you say, well, I'm so grateful for that person, but Lord, where am I this morning? Help me, help me to live that life of consistency that you long for in my life. Lord, as all of us have been given different portions, different gifts, different things to contribute not just to this world but also in this church, Lord, I offer what I have for your name and for your glory. Amen. I'm just going to pray for a minute. Still. Just be still and just take a moment in quiet to examine your own heart. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here afresh. You know the inner workings of our hearts, our minds, our lives. You know us better than ourselves. Would you have your way amongst us? We offer ourselves afresh to you this morning. And we recognize this morning, not just for us personally, but for us as a church. We long to be good news, not just personally, but to this community and this city. We ask that you would grow us in grace and truth. You grow us in unity, you grow us in confidence, grow us in forgiveness, grow us in peacemaking, grow us in sacrificial generosity, grow us in justice, grow us in compassion, and grow us in patient love. Not because of our own wills, because of who we are, because of that's who you are when you're at work in us. Father, thank you for Nehemiah, thank you for his life. And Father, I pray that you continue to raise us up and spur us on for all you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.